Creative Sandbox Way Podcast, Episode 191. Hello, I am Melissa Dinwiddie, and I believe that life is too short not to express the innate creativity inside of you. So I wrote a book called The Creative Sandbox Way, based around 10 guideposts that I developed to get myself out of creative stuck and back to the sense of playful creativity that I naturally had when I was a four-year-old. That book was just the tip of the iceberg. I continue the conversation with this podcast. Let's jump in. My guest this week is Peter Van Winkle. But I have a confession to make. As you listen to our conversation, especially the first half, although really throughout, you will hear that I did a lot of the talking. Uh, I really kind of dominated. At least that's how it's feeling to me now. At the time, it felt like we were having a conversation rather than a... uh, Melissa asks questions and the interviewee answers kind of a, you know, kind of a deal. But upon listening back, it, it really feels like I was just dominating and I feel really embarrassed about that. And actually, I would love to do this whole interview over again. But in the spirit of imperfectionism, I am releasing what I've got and I'm being transparent about how I feel about it. And hopefully you will find some value in what's here because Peter is amazing. And despite my steamrolling all over the place, he does get a word in edgewise and he is brilliant and he is so willing to be vulnerable. He just, that's just who he is. And I feel so grateful to be able to share his insights and his wisdom here. So in all its messiness, with me steamrolling like crazy. Here is my conversation with Peter Van Winkle. Enjoy. Peter Van Winkle is a soul-centric facilitator and men's leader. He combines wild, clear seeing with an abiding sense of humor to facilitate individuals, couples, and groups towards greater freedom and fulfillment. He gratefully lives on a farmstead in Western Colorado with his dog, Gia. Is that how you pronounce your dog's name? Gia. Gia. I should have asked you before I read your bio. (laughs) Anyway, welcome, Peter. It's great to have you here. Thank you so much, Melissa. It's great to be here. And did I pronounce your name right? Peter, yeah. Okay, great. (laughs) I should have asked you that too. One for two. <laughs> <laughs> One for two. Gia. Well, welcome. I, you know, I was, m- one of the reasons I wanted to have you on the show is that you and I have a, a dance, share dance as a, our, as an interest, a background. And I'm really curious about your, your dance background. So tell me about how, where dance fits in your life and how you got started with dance. Sure, I will. I'm just really appreciating looking at like the creative space you're talking from right now. I'm just, I like, I like feel like I would love to like play in there. But anyway, so 
Yeah, well, that's uh, how would I like give you like a simple version? I had like a psychosomatic sort of like really challenging knee condition for a few years in my late 20s. I guess it was, yeah, my late 20s. And uh, wound up uh, in Boulder, Colorado through connections through, um, if you're familiar with the work of Bill Plotkin and the Animus Valley Institute, which is basically sort of nature and land-based soul work or sort of depth work in the sort of lineage of of the depth psychologists and the the sort of James Hillman's and and Carl Jung's of the world. Anyway, I was visiting a friend that I'd met in that program and she took me to five rhythms, sweat your prayers, which is like a Sunday sort of moving mass. It's actually called movement mass in Boulder. And I cried through the whole thing. Didn't remember what each rhythm was, who was around me, what was going on. But I knew at the end that I was totally cleaned out and my knee didn't hurt. And so kind of following that thread more out of desperation and, and, and as well, the inspiration of how good I felt led me, it was this, this constant thread really in the beginning out of necessity. And then after a while, you know, I kind of, I healed my, my knee problem and continued to dance in the five rhythms. And then along the way, picked up other sort of movement modalities, including um, contact improvisation, body, mind centering. Uh, a, a pretty cool but sort of little-known practice in Boulder called the School of Disappearance with a man named Andrew Marcus, and wound up today where the body is just so central to how I organize, how I think about moving through my movements, and really where I I feel all sort of I don't know spiritual work for me it happens in the body. So. Mm. And creative work as well. But yeah, the body right there. Wow. Okay. So you were in your twenties when you when you first discovered this connection? Yeah, I guess I was twenty-nine when I discovered the five rhythms. Wow. When found, yeah, when I found that, which is a movement form uh pioneered by a woman named Gabrielle Roth. And it was she's died, but her son and, and many other teachers still teach. So Yeah. It so sounds like you're familiar with it. I, I am a little bit familiar with it. I don't know if I've been to a five rhythms session, workshop, whatever, or not. I know I've been to something similar if I haven't. And I've and I've done ecstatic dance and I've done a tiny bit of I've done some improv dance, a tiny bit of contact improv. I'm really fascinated with people's relationship with movement and dance. My relationship with dance is very complex and, and shall we say fraught mm-hmm. because I, I first dove into dance in a really intense way when I was a teenager and the kind of dance that I got into was um, not so healthy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it was, I, I first got into so-called jazz dance, which is there's no relationship to jazz music. It, there's no improvisation involved. It's, <laughs> I don't know why it's called jazz dance. It's, right. you know, now they call it sort of contemporary dance, I guess. But it, what I knew at the time was I loved moving my, my body to music and I got a lot of praise for, you know, being quote unquote good at mm-hmm. it. And 
I moved very quickly from, I started taking a lot of classes and I moved very quickly from jazz to continuing with jazz and adding ballet and modern, you know, the kind of dance that you do on a stage with a proscenium, proscenium arch and all of that with an audience and, you know, very different from ecstatic dance where you're all about being, you know, internally focused and how it's feeling in your body and how it's feeling spiritually. It's all about how you look. Right. And how right. other people are responding to what you're doing and, and responding to what, what you look like. And, you know, that for me created a lot of, you know, body image issues and eating disorders and, you know, a lot of uh, extreme unhealthy stuff. Totally. Plus the teacher that I started with, although I, I owe him a, a debt of gratitude in a lot of ways, was not a healthy person and drove wedges between friends in order to, I don't know, he had this idea that somehow that would make people improve their... their that was the teacher? That was the teacher. Yeah. You know, to very toxic. It was extremely toxic. And years and years later, people from that studio would talk about having a survivor's group from... Wow. Studio. And then I ended up going to Juilliard in New York City. For dance. For dance for one year because I got injured while I was there. So that, that ended up being the end of my dance career, although I didn't know it at the time because it was a it was tendonitis. So it wasn't like a, you know, a broken bone or something like that. Right. And that was a very toxic environment as well. And oh, yeah. and you know, it took me so long to find a different relationship to movement and dance. And which is so sad to me because our bodies, you know, as you know, our bodies are made to move and there's such ecstatic joy that we can get from moving our bodies. And yet it can be twisted in such a way that can be so toxic. And to me, that speaks to so many things in life, right? I mean, we can have that same relationship to say pottery, which is something else that you do, or painting or writing or anything else, we can have a healthy nice. relationship to what we're doing, or we can have a toxic relationship to what we're doing. Right. Totally. Yeah. The word that jumps to mind for me is fun. Like yes. A fun, like a fun relationship with it or a not fun. <laughs> yeah. And you know, another word that springs to my mind is playful. Mm. Like if it's, if it's play, if it's playful, I don't know. And somehow spiritual, fits in there for me somehow, then it's healthy for me. And if it's, I don't know, when I, I came back to dance in my thirties, I guess, as social dance, salsa and tango. And I, I I'm initially thought, Oh, I'm going to, you know, get really competitive at this and, you know, get to the high level and blah, blah, blah. And I realized very quickly, no, 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 I have to not do that. It's going to get toxic for me. Nice. And I had to come back to the, I don't think I had the words for it at the time, but I had to come back to a place of doing it from, you know, just play. Right. Totally. Just like finding the contact point of your own interest in your body where it feels good and yummy and flowy and not trying to turn it into it almost sounds like the difference between where you imagine the sort of witness is if the witness is outside you 
then you're going to want to make sure you're this. But if the witness is simply inside you and it's more about sensation and, and connection. Yeah. And yet there, for me, I, you know, the sticking point is also, I still want to achieve a level of mastery. That's always been for me, something that gives me a great joy. Mm -hmm. And so I remember feeling for the longest time in my life, I don't know if this is something that you can relate to at all. I had the hardest time letting go of my perfectionism because I felt like if I let go of perfectionism, that I would be, um, I don't know what the word is, that I would be settling, that I would be... Sort of like, uh, what's that word? Like mediocre, just like... Yeah. Yeah. That I wouldn't be pushing myself at all, you know, that I would be allowing myself to just dissolve into mediocrity. And, totally. and so where's the point? Like if I don't, I, th- I thought that if I let go of perfectionism, that I wouldn't strive to improve it all, that I would never mm-hmm. achieve a level of mastery, which does give me great joy. So where's the balance, you know? Yeah. The thing that I, if I may, it leads me to, not that I'm trying to like segue, but the way I think about that is a lot of times like who is doing the thinking or who, which part in me is directing it. When yeah. I hear that, I, what I hear is like a perfectionist part rather than like, cause it's what it sounds like is as you came into salsa and tango and these other dance forms, as you came into more of a healthy relationship with it, I'm imagining, you know, sort of simultaneously, there was a sort of deeper guiding embodied sense of how you were going to direct your life that was more mature, something closer to the, what I would call the soul. And then there's this other voice that's still there, this perfectionist part, but you can recognize, yes, okay, you have your value and you totally have brought me a lot of you know accolades and things that I'm grateful for, but that doesn't necessarily mean I'm going to allow you to project manage <laughs> this next thing. And then the yeah. soul says, yeah, actually, and then, right? And then you bring in some of the other voices. It sounds like pleasure and play and I don't know for you, but yeah. Yeah. And I think, it, I think for me, it's, it's still a matter of figuring out where the line is between where is that line of pleasure and play. And, you know, I still like to achieve mastery and excellence, or I don't know, master, mastery may be an extreme <laughs> word, like what is mastery, but achieve, you know, strive towards excellence and, and improvement, right? Mm-hmm. But I don't want that, I don't want, I don't want that to be the slave master. Totally. It, that And uh, achieving some level of excellence and some striving towards mastery gives me pleasure, but crossing, you know, there is a line. When I cross over that line, it goes away from pleasure and towards toxicity. Right. So where is that line? And I'm, and I'm constantly dancing with that. And it sounds like a little bit, it's like, what is the definition of mastery? And that the definition of mastery might change as you value play, right? Because like, when you look at somebody like Yo-Yo Ma, he has excellence, but he also has pleasure and ma- he has mastery, but he also has play. And I bet he might include that play as part of his definition of excellence. That's one thing I thought. And the other thing that I thought was that, you know, 
this is kind of what you were hitting on, which is like letting the good, letting the, the, the perfect become the enemy of the good to the point where you don't actually organically allow the pleasure and the play to inform and be an ingredient of the mastery because it's short-circuited by this little like self-referencing thing that says like doesn't measure up yeah which isn't in the body that does that just doesn't live in the body that lives in the brain yeah and well and that was most of my life <laughs> totally Me I, too. Mean, I, I didn't make art for 15 years i didn't write for a totally separate 14 years or something because i don't know this doesn't measure up so i can't do it at all, you know, perfectionist paralysis, which is its own toxicity. So that doesn't work. <laughs> right. Right. <laughs> totally. And yet like now I, I so I, I trained as a calligrapher and I spent, you know, way too many years thinking, crying, looking through the pages of Letter Arts Review, which is the <laughs> premier journal of, you know, the lettering calligraphy world, thinking, oh my God, I'm never going to be as good as this artist, that artist, the other artist who's in these pages. And even when I was published in Letter Arts Review, I found excuses for why, oh, well, it was the wedding issue. That's <laughs> the only reason I got published, right? And, you know, crying because I'd never be good enough and beating myself up and never, and then not in, not being able to enjoy what I was doing. And then coming, you know, finally, like now, like I barely do calligraphy in my work. And when I do, it tends to be very messy. Nice. intentionally to let just like to let the send those perfectionist gremlins away because if i like the the work the art that i do now is totally improvisational mm. and very abstract and very like intentionally messy lines mm -hmm. to send off those perfectionist gremlins and part of me was like afraid that i what if I'm doing that only because I can't do right. the other thing? Right. You know, <laughs> the neat and tidy lines or whatever. <laughs> totally. Totally. Oh, man. The ways we, we have to sort of, you know, play around with this stuff in order to. Are you a four on the Enneagram? Do you I am you totally a four. Yeah. I was just, I've been, I've been trying to type you effort. I was, I just landed on it. I was like, because <laughs> that, that inner critic, but you also have the whole like excellence thing, which is inner critic. And anyway, but, you know, fours, fours, cheers. I'm a four. So. <laughs> you probably interview a lot of fours. <laughs> well, you, so you also do pottery and I'm curious about the pottery. So what kinds of pottery do you do? Do you make usable items do you make abstract things and when did you get started with it okay so i only just started this summer and it was i had a massive heartbreak in january which just like just shattered me so deeply and uh was way harder than i thought it would be based on my previous experience and just pottery was like this this place that I could find where I you know I took a class here 
in the valley where I, I just could stop thinking for a few hours. So I started and I've fallen in love with it. I found a vein of clay on my land and on my farm, which I then dug and have processed. And I've been experimenting with different ways to make shapes and forms and then fire. And I'm sort of like learning all this stuff. The other thing I did was I gave myself the task of making a hundred bowls. So I could like really master making bowls. And just Oh my God, that's so cool. Yeah. Give, I thought you'd like that. I like give myself the permission. I actually told myself, cause I have this whole hang up about like material matter. And it's like, you know, every time you fire something, you know, it's a thing, it exists. So like holding that against this idea of like, yeah. And you know what? I'm just going to give myself permission to make as many bowls as I want. Well, do you, you know, the story from the book art and fear? No. Is which book is that art and fear? That's not, the, that's not the war of art. No, this is a different book. Oh, so I, this is a story that I share in a speech that I give. I'm, I'm delivering this speech. By the time this episode airs, I will have delivered the speech already at Tribe Conference that Jeff Goins does every year in outside of Nashville. And I tell this story. It's a true story. A ceramics college ceramics teacher, I think local to my area, actually divided his class into oh, I heard about this. groups at the start of the semester. I heard about this. According to where they happen to be sitting in the classroom. And so everybody on one side of the classroom would be graded at the end of the semester according to the quality of their pots. And in fact, they only needed one pot to get an A, but it had to be perfect. Right. And everybody in the other side of the classroom, on the other side, would be graded at the end of the semester according to quantity. 50 pounds of pots would get an A, 40 pounds would get a beef, 30 pounds would get a C, et cetera. So at the end of the semester, you know the you know the end of the story. Yeah, but tell it, it's so good. So which group do you think, you know the answer, right? Would got the better grades and made the better pots? Right. Yeah. The, the idea- quantity group, because the quality group spent the entire semester th- just theorizing about perfection and agonizing. Over that one perfect pot, they're totally caught in the comparison trap. I mean, you know, in in perfectionist paralysis. And the quantity group was cranking out all this work and learning from their mistakes. And of course, they're having a lot more fun. Yeah. And it actually, just to dip back into the five rhythms, it goes to the same reason why people who are doing sort of balancing or modern or whatever are like going crazy because they're always trying to make the perfect pot. And in five rhythms and other sort of like improvisational forms, there is never a perfect pot. Exactly. So that the focus then goes from what this looks like to what is the emotional ride you're going to go on and why, and how is you're sort of scouring yourself out from the inside. And I, I think it creates people who are freer and happier and all those other things. That is exactly why I'm in love with improvisation in all its forms. Totally. As a visual artist, as a performer, as a musician, as a teacher, as a podcaster. Right. That is exactly it. Exactly what you just said. Yeah. So yes, you're never really trying to hang on to this or that. You're just you're just saying, yeah, let's make this thing. And then we'll just send it on down the assembly line and do the next one. And we'll just keep doing it. And then along the way, somebody comes in, and they say, wow, your podcast is rad. Or like, wow, you're, you like make awesome songs. Like how do you, and you're just kind of like, yeah, well, you know, 
And you tell the pot, the two pot story, you know? Right, exactly. (laughs) And I'm not ever trying to match this platonic ideal in my head, which I can never, I can never live up to that platonic ideal in my head. Right. It's impossible. And it's miserable trying to. Oh, it's excruciating. Yes. Totally. Man, I got I got to hand it to you for trying though. That's awesome. Oh man, it was really painful. But you know, I, I have definitely learned a lot in the process. And in fact, a few years ago, I was working on a piece. I very, very occasionally, I will come up with an idea, and I'll think, well, what would happen if I did this? And that's that's really what improv is. It's this constant dance, metaphorically or literally, if you're dancing, of trying what would happen if I do this? What would happen if I do this? What would happen if I do this? Just this constant stream of stream of consciousness of trying, you know, what, what would happen, which is my guidepost. Number six of my creative sandbox guidepost is to ask what if, so occasionally I'll have an idea. Oh, I want to try this. And then I'll, I'll have this platonic idea ideal in my head and I'll try it. So I had this idea and it was sort of a collage with linen thread sewn around and Anyway, I I had this idea in my head and I started to try it and I got bored with it very quickly. And I realized that if I finished the entire idea out, I was really not going to like it. It was so freaking boring. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So what I did is I took the half finished piece, partially finished piece, and I basically said, okay, this now is my blank canvas. This partially finished piece is my blank canvas. Now, now what do I do? Nice. I like that. That's awesome. Yeah. And that's, that's how I look at my, my unfinished objects, my UFOs on my shelf or in my drawers or whatever. And I highly recommend this to anybody. If you've got something that's not finished, that you're really annoyed with yourself, (laughs) that is sitting in a drawer, sitting on a shelf, pull it out and look at it as if that is an un, as it is a blank canvas react respond to what's there as a blank canvas i mean and i'm not talking about you know painting over it with gesso to make it make it into a white right, totally. blank canvas just respond to what's there it's almost like what's there is a kind of topography with sort of tall points and low points and different kinds of colors. And you go in and you just simply have all the freedom in the world to create a new topography on top of that. Exactly. Exactly. I mean, that's what we're doing in this conversation right now. Right. We're responding to what's there. I make an offer. You this is an improv principle. You say you accept that offer yes, and, and you build on it. You say yes and that's that is an improv principle. You don't li- you literally say yes and. I mean you might if that's the appropriate <laughs> thing to do, but that's you know that's a shorthand. Yes and is a shorthand for the the principle of accept and build. So just take that unfinished object whether it's a sweater or a painting or whatever it is and accept what's there and build on it. Someone, I heard this the other day, you've probably heard this, but it's basically exactly what you're saying. Someone said, art is never finished. It's simply abandoned. <laughs> Which I, was, I think it might've been Picasso. <laughs> or or another one I've heard is a book is never finished. It's simply published. Right. That's good. <laughs> yeah. Well, I love what, what you were just sharing about your pottery. 
that what what there's a number of things that I love about it. One is that you just started this new art endeavor very recently and that you started it as it sounds like really as a healing practice and that not a lot of people take on new creative practices as adults right because because so many people label themselves as oh i'm not creative and i used to be that person i i for many years of my That's life crazy. thought i am i am not a creative person I know people don't believe that now, but it is so true. And too many of us, you know, lose that sense of permission, right? Do we think, oh, I'm not creative. Oh, other people over there. They're the creative ones, not me. You dove into this new creative practice that, you know, maybe you did pottery when you were a little kid or something. No, <laughs> I did once like 10 years ago. But yeah, I, I, I. I'm a big fan of trying to find these pockets of like, I guess expression that feel like they have no ego attached to them yeah. for whatever reason. Like, you know, there's certain things that I've dabbled in like acting or songwriting to a lesser degree. Although I figured out a way around the ego in songwriting, but like where I'm wrapped up. I'm wound up in there. It, it, it's, it's, it's about me. It's, it's got to say something about me. It's got to reach people and do something, but ultimately tell them about me. And the great thing about pottery was just like, this is a place I can just go and I don't have to, I don't care what anybody thinks. I'm just doing these for me, but not for anybody else for me, you know? And like, it was just like, I don't know. I think I always fantasized about becoming a potter because I just love, I don't know. There's something about it. It's fun. It's awesome. And yeah. Well, what you just described, I would call playing in the creative sandbox. Yes. Okay, good. Why? Well, that, that is my central metaphor. And the, the creative sandbox is that mind space of being a little four-year-old kid where it is all about exploring and making messes. And it is not about impressing other people. It's not about making money. It's not about anything, but just like, oh my God, what would happen if I do this? It is purely for play and exploration and for your own enjoyment because it makes you feel alive. That is, that is purely what the creative sandbox is about. And that sounds like pottery is that for you. It's one of them. But yeah, it's a big one lately. It's been like the like a, a lifesaver, and I, I was so lucky to find a, 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 a studio here in town that was like had a couple, like had like four wheels and four members, and they were like, "We need a actually no three members, and we need a fourth. Do you want to join?" <laughs> and I've heard I'd heard about. Yeah, I don't know. It just it just all came together so great. And so I had all all went all summer. It's funny. It was winter emotionally, but <laughs> otherwise it was summer. I spent every day in there, and I basically had it to myself. And you know, I I know it's a real thing that when people don't have a place to make art, and so to be able to have just a free place was wasn't free money wise, but just it was basically me. I just took it over, and it was awesome. Amazing. Yeah. Well, I wanted to ask you, you mentioned something about some of your other creative practices that you said something about ego and ego involvement 
And specifically, you said something about songwriting and that you found a way around the ego with songwriting. Right. So I'm going to dive into that. Tell me more nice. about that. Oh, that's a good catch. Okay. Well, so I remember when I used to, I really wanted to express myself and I really wanted to, I just, you know, I think I idolized certain songwriters and would see certain songwriters or rock stars on stage and places and be like, Oh my God, like that should be me. Like I should be up there. And so at, in pursuit of that longing, I learned how to play guitar and I would be around friends and I would start playing like a cover and I would be imitating that songwriter. I'm, for some reason, the, the one that's coming to my mind was like sublime. And I was trying to like sing like, and I sort of started, to, and it was really heartbreaking because I would always get the same response, which was like, cool or nothing. So, which was the worst, like you're at a party and you're singing, you're playing in the corner and nobody's stopping what they're doing. Everybody's continuing what they're doing. And you just kind of stop. And there's this like feeling that like you said something or you did something and it just kind of, nobody, <laughs> nobody took it. You did this thing and not even that people de declined it. They just didn't take it. And they just ignored it. And, and I, I remember a couple of times playing for my mom and her being like making this face. And anyway, all along at that point, I was like really still wanting to write songs. And then something happened. And well, one part, one thing that happened, which was, which was really weird. This is kind of one of those weird things, but who cares? We're on the creative sandbox. Like, I don't remember that why I did this, but I was in my room living on Vashon Island in Seattle. And I decided that I wanted to like, I was upset about something and I, I decided to give myself like a catharsis. So I just started like shaking my body on my bed and I just started like moving all around and like really violently. <laughs> this is really weird, but like somehow I hit my throat and all of a sudden I couldn't sing above like 50% of my register, which was where I used to sing all those songs. Now it, it sounds like I was constantly singing and then this happened. It wasn't like that, but I just, I, all of a sudden I noticed my voice was low. And at first I got nervous. I was like, what is going on here? Anyway, I'll get to the, I don't want to blab on forever, but the idea was I noticed that I was singing slower, lower, and I started to just talk songs. And then I, so I put that together with recognizing that whenever I was singing these other songs, I was always singing it with the energy that was like, it was like an energetic sort of uh, plea or demand on others. Would you please look at me and give me something that was like woven into my voice. And then I, I started to sing songs where I said, I'm just going to tell a story like it is that really describes my personal relationship with exile or with pain or with the thing that I'm struggling with, not to get something from anybody else, but to be with a fidelity to the way it is for me or the way it is that it is for my character through me or for me through my character that And what I noticed is immediately when I started with that fidelity to that character and that own experience of what I'm calling exile, it was like, people were like, they could take something from it. It was like, oh, they could be wow. Oh my gosh. So, so two things that that makes me think about. One is 
when I started, when I joined my old synagogue, it's lay led. And so they quickly figured out that I could carry a tune and tapped me to help lead services because there's a lot of singing. Yeah, yeah, totally. So that got me into singing. Like I realized, oh, I guess I can sing. And, but I, I get hoarse very easily. So I started taking voice lessons thinking in the hopes that that would help me help prevent me from getting hoarse so easily. And in the process of that, I just somehow discovered jazz and started taking vocal jazz classes, got really into jazz singing and ended up becoming a semi-professional jazz singer. Wow. You've had so many lives. I know. I know. It's crazy. Well, you get old enough, you get, you can have lots of lives. (laughs) So with jazz, you know, rife with opportunities for me to get caught in the comparison trap. Oh my God, I'm never going to be able to sing like Ella Fitzgerald. Oh my God, I'm never going to be able to sing like Dana Crawl, da da da, whatever. But when I, but of course, the idea is, you know, everybody sings the same t- songs, right? From right. the Great American Songbook. The idea is to make it your own, your own, right? Totally. But still, I'm never going to be like Ella. I'm never going to be like Carmen McRae, whatever. But then I started writing my own songs. Totally. And there was something that really grounded me when I started writing my own songs, because even though somebody else might ostensibly take my song and record it and have a hit or something like that, it's still, it's mine. And that, I don't know, sort of relaxed me. So that is something that I thought of after hearing your story. And then the other thing is you're talking about the the fidelity that you were singing your songs through you know the the telling that story through that character or whatever through that particular fidelity rather than well listen to me look at me look at me pay attention to me or whatever made me think of when i started sharing my art in process that I'd made in the creative sandbox, not with the intention of impressing people, right? getting people to you know, buy it or anything like that, but simply because I just decided that this would be my practice to share whatever I'd made, even if I thought it was crappy. <laughs> I started this practice with this very improv perspective of making an offer and letting it go, right? I'm just going to make a strong offer and let it go. Mm -hmm. And because we have Instagram, we have social media, we have the opportunity to put things out there, right? And what was fascinating to me is how that practice, which I, I could put things out there and go, do people like it? Do people like it? Do people like it? And try and feed the bottomless pit, (laughs) <laughs> right? right, which is not going to help me at all. But instead, I decided to put things out there and let them go with totally. no expectations of an outcome. And what that enabled me to do is surprisingly, like p- strangers would take the time to lift their thumbs and tap the like button, yeah, <laughs> which was so interesting to me. And so I would share something and think, well, that's a piece of crap. I'm going to, you know, paint over it tomorrow. And instead, I would get feedback that, oh, some people like this. And sometimes people would want to buy something that I thought, well, I'm going to paint over that tomorrow. And so that enabled me to take off my gremlin glasses and put on 
somebody else's neutral glasses and see my work through their eyes uh. and see my work as if it were somebody else's work and see my work and realize, oh, they see value in my work, which means I have two choices then. I can either think, well, they have lousy taste. Right. Or I can think, well, they see value in it. Maybe there's value there. Mm-hmm. And that allowed me, I decided to go with option two, and <laughs> that allowed me to have more compassion for my work and for myself. Awesome. It's a powerful practice. It can be. Again, you can share, you can share your work and go, do they like me? Do they like me? Do they like me? You could do that with your songs, right? You could still do that. But oh. if it's, it's that fidelity, right? You, you sing those songs with that fidelity of through that character's voice. Nice. Yeah, I can see the parallel there. Like when you're making your art and putting it out, the fidelity that you're having in that place is to this almost like inner creative one that is going, the one that lives in the creative sandbox, the one that is going to make things for the pleasure of making them. And then you sort of hand it off to this other part that says like, just for shits and grins, let's put it out and see what happens. But you're not sort of polluting it with any hooks either implied or sort of snuck in. You just have this fidelity to, I did this for me, I, or whatever, whatever that like, it's like that, it's even in the body, right? It's like that like, it's connected all the way along. It doesn't skip any steps. Like this thing I made here. Yes. And the other thing which relates to your, your songwriting and your singing when you write a song and you sing a song, you are giving something. Totally. If you don't ever sing that song, then what's the point, right? If you don't sing that song for an audience, then it's kind of like, like why are you <laughs> even writing a song? I actually right? felt that to be true when I was writing the songs. I felt like if I didn't, especially the ones that mattered to me, they mattered so much that if I didn't play it and it closed the loop, which to me is to get received and consumed and then come back out the bottom with a kind of recognition so that I can feel the song go out and I can feel them come back in. That loop is closed and then I can like exhale. It's like, Oh yeah. Yes. You're giving something by writing that song and singing that song for an audience that's a really, that's closing the loop. That's really, really important. And that's how I feel about creating art. And it's a, it's a step that so many artists, they get scared and they never close that loop. They never take that step. Huh. And, yeah. and I feel like for me, there's another layer to that, which is somebody asked me a number of years ago, Melissa, what do you want to be known for? I was, this was in a business context when I was trying to figure out, do I work on promoting myself, my art and selling my art? Or do I work on promoting myself as a creativity instigator and selling my services? Mm-hmm. Because there's only so many things you can focus on, right? Totally. And I realized it was such 
a great question. It was, it was this pivotal moment for me because it made me realize that actually I would rather be known for being the person that got you to pick up a paintbrush or a guitar or whatever and actually get creating. Mm. Then, you know, yes, maybe five or 10 years before that, or maybe even two years before that, I don't know, I would have, my ego needed to be known as the great artist or whatever. But at that point, not anymore. I would rather be known. I, I, my ego is not as big or fragile, or I don't know what the adjective is. I don't care so much anymore. If you think of me as a great artist, I want to be known as the person who got you to do your creative thing. So when I put my thing out in the world, it doesn't matter to me so much that you think it's great or good. I want it to inspire you to do your thing. Nice. That's a really, you're a really integrated four. <laughs> I'm seeing like a lot of the like high side of one and two, which are the, two ways that we anyway that's a, that's the different sounds podcast, like you know a lot about the enneagram the enneagram is like I'm, i don't know i'm always seeing things through different lenses but in general hearing you talk there i'm i'm appreciating how that seems like uh, a very healthy version of you and a very sort of evolved version of you like when i hear that i don't get a sense that you're really caught up in yourself and i don't get a sense that you're like still duking it out with this like you call your ego part it's more like you've 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 transcended that and so a previous version of you would have seen that coming and been like well but here's all the problems with that and that that problem has been transcended you're not even like doing that you're just in this well it's taken me long enough to get here yeah well that's good (laughs) (laughs) so just what i'm appreciating it feels i gotta tell you it feels like such a weight off to not be battling with that ego place. Oh my God. <laughs> Man, I know I spent my thirties there. So. Well, I spent my thirties and forties there. So. <laughs> yeah. Well, <laughs> I'm a late bloomer. What can I well, say? Well, I'm a late bloomer too. I, w- I actually was going to say, I don't know that I've totally gotten out of it. Like, I feel like there's ways that I have and there's ways that I haven't. And I'm not, Like, I don't have a total beat on it in this moment to be able to say, here is how I have and haven't. I I don't feel like I'm 100% out either. I mean, we're all works in progress all the time, right? I was just like, this is is like a little bit of revealing about how like the gremlins go to work. Do you know what what I just said to myself? While I was actively listening to you, although it's possible that I, I took a break from listening to you and got the gist and went and did this, but like while you were talking a minute ago, I was saying something to myself like, well, you know, because you were saying like, uh, you know, I figured out this thing that I wanted to be. And I was like, gosh, I wonder what it's like for her to have a guest on her show that doesn't really know what he, what he, what he is and this and that. And it's like, I'm just like a regular person. And like, <laughs> oh, well, I guess like, I guess like, you know, once she gets bigger, she'll start to have like, you know, more like actual important people. And like, <laughs> I'm just kind of like the early sort of like meaningless person that gets on the show when she's not famous yet. And like, (laughs) Whoa, this must be like, you know, I was doing all this stuff and being like, basically just trashing myself. (laughs) 
I love so so much that you just shared that, Peter. (laughs) That's so fantastic. Oh my God. I love that you just shared that gremlin. I have that gremlin too. Our gremlins can get together and party. Yeah. Totally. That is so hilarious. Because my gremlin's going, as you were saying that, my gremlin is going, who is he kidding? Like, I'm never going to be that famous person. Right. 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 Which is, yeah. My gremlin's going, what is he talking about? He's amazing. Like, he's like so much cooler than I am. Because that's my my comparison trap gremlin is my biggest gremlin. Right. I'm so lucky he even came on my show. Like, that's where my gremlin goes. I know, and it's, I could go down a whole other thing about that, but. This is what happens when you get two fours in the same virtual space. Isn't it funny? I have a lot to say. I know. We've all had experiences about fours, fours together. It's like, I don't know. It can be amazing and it can also be like so messed up. (laughs) We're doing good though. So it's okay. So for those, those who are listening, who are not familiar with the Enneagram, since it sounds like you're very experience with the Enneagram, can you give a little nutshell thumbnail um, explanation of it? Sure. The Enneagram are basically nine personality types. The best way, by the way, if you want to know what type you are, is to go and take the ready test, the Riso Hudson Enneagram type indicator test, R-H-E-T-I, pay the $12 or do a bunch of the free ones and figure it out or read one of the books. Anyway, there's nine types. When you take the test, take it as if you're in high school. Because a lot of people, especially people who are ready to do certain spiritual work, have already kind of evolved a piece. And so who you are now is not a perfect. But once you find out what your personality type is, I really find it's super helpful in terms of like what tasks you can do to solve certain bugaboos that happen to beset people of your particular type. So there's no bad numbers. There's no good numbers. Uh, one through the, and, and we're all, all the numbers, but we have certain sort of dominant dominancy in particular types. And I find it's helpful both in my work with individuals. Once I get working with them for a while and figure out like what type they are, that's kind of like a fast track to being like, okay. And my guess is that they're struggling with fear or perfectionism or critic or this or that. Anyway, so yeah, it's really good. I found it phenomenally helpful when I learned first learned about the Enneagram. Phenomenally helpful to understand myself. I like anything that's going to help me understand me better and understand my relationships with other people better. I'm a big fan of. And boy, it just cracked open so many things for me. Uh, one of the things the like the big sort of bugaboo for fours is envy. Right. (laughs) Like like you said, the comparison gremlin. Comparison gremlin. Like that is my biggest gremlin. Totally. Totally. (laughs) Always looking at other people and thinking, Oh my God, I wish I was like them. They have it or they have, have it so much better than I am. I'm such a loser. You know, all that. That's my biggest gremlin for sure. And it also has helped me so much understand my relationships with other people. And what's so interesting is that both of my marriages, I ended up marrying twos. The two is the giver. 
Oh yeah. And I swore I would never get in a relationship with another two, but I got in a relationship with a healthy two. <laughs> okay, that's good. two the second time around. The twos go to four, so they probably saw you as a kind of a mentor in certain ways. Yeah. Th- yes. Yeah. I think that's true. Yeah. Anyway, yeah, the, the first one was not an evolved two. It was a toxic two. <laughs> well, twos will always, um, toxic twos will uh, be resentful for you if you don't respond in equal measure to the generosity they've given you. So every there's always a hook. Oh, yep. Everything had a hook. Everything has a price. Right? Everything had a price. Yep. Yeah. Totally. I love twos. I mean, I love all the numbers, but totally. <laughs> Oh my gosh, the Enneagram. Yeah, I find it endlessly fascinating. And I know I know just the tiniest little bit about it, but I find it really, really fascinating. So what I wanted to ask you is before we move on to our something cools, is how how do you work with your clients? And is that is that your main kind of work that you do is work with individuals, you work with groups? Yeah, so so you know, I moved I moved to the country and uh I'm I'm been making my time working with individuals and couples as well as just doing farm life. And, you know, I don't, I, I, I value the opportunity and the, the ability by moving out of the city to a place where the quality of life is high and the cost of, of that quality of life is lower. I can get away with a lot of that, but yeah, that's, that's the main thing I'm doing on that angle. And, you know, since I moved to the country, I mean, you know, I was on Facebook and a lot of people in the sort of coaching helping field are like really, really on the sort of social media train. And I got off Facebook and I'm not doing Facebook and I'm not advertising in that way. And I've really been working mostly with locals with a few people remotely. And so it's been taking some time to slowly build that. And there's a lot of dynamics in terms of a small town. But anyway, what you want me to just say, like what it is basically just really quickly, like what it is that I do. So like I I was I mentioned Bill Plotkin earlier, who is uh, for people listening, you know the book Soulcraft and the book Nature and the Human Soul. I think you would also dig like they're amazing and he's amazing. In, in working with him, he connected me with a guy he was connected with, and that guy became my mentor therapist. And he basically did therapy on me because I was really struggling in these loops with my critic and my comparison self, and was noticing watching my early thirties go by and just certain things were happening so that I could not sort of think that it was all was lost, but I was noticing that I was really stuck. And I, through working with him, through working with these parts and what he basically helped me to begin to, what he facilitated and helped me to begin to do is to begin to become more aware of who's talking in me and more often and more with greater frequency, be able to disidentify and come back to a kind of central organizing principle or soul that is going to make choices. Not like just a bypassing witness where I just, every time things get hard or I start to get in my own way, I simply go, ah, and like sort of listen for the choir of angels. It's like I, 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 I listen and I, I become responsible for and then get still and then be able i think of it lately i've been using a clay metaphor where it's like when you're centering clay and it's not centered yet 
and there's every time it goes around this bump hits you and it just and, you, and your hands just keep moving with it right that's like a part talking and then if i can fold that back in to that mound of clay ah and then everything is centered because i'm in charge the soul is in charge i'm in charge my deepest sense of what it is to be this consciousness in this lifetime that is not fully known but doesn't need to be fully known in order to be able to be sovereign creative and active and that that sort of burgeoning emergent awareness is what i'm helping clients to come into contact with through basic facilitation of the parts and the coming back in and it, it you know it winds up being all the typical things that we go through relationship and job and inner criticism and addic- not so much addiction i don't typically find people in active addiction that country uses people after that but yeah all these kinds of things right and wow. social anxiety how can we come back to really like i say an emergent sense of a kind of for me it's nature a natural when i say natural like like when i look at nature and i see how things interact there is a way that i can interact and join and participate that will feel that natural and so kind of resting back into that and learning more about it mm in a kind of mythopoetic way over time. Wow, very cool. So it's mostly local people, individuals and couples in um so you meet with them in person. Yeah, most in person unless they're on the phone in which case they're not local, but yeah. Yeah. Cool. I love it. Thanks. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks for asking. <laughs> And where can people find you if they want to find out more about you? PeterVW.com. And you spell Peter a little bit differently than people might. I do, but I preserve both domains. So however they spell it, they'll find me. But my name is spelled P-I-E-T-E-R-V-W. Great. Awesome. And you brought something cool to share for some Okay. I guess I'm going to share this. So... The thing that, so let me just go into it, or do you want to? Yeah. yeah. Okay. My something cool is the Zoji Rushi water boiler. Do you know anything about this? I don't. I should walk you over to it so I can show you, since this is all audio anyway. So I, I've had this for a few years, and uh, here, here it is. I don't know if you can, can you see it? I can, yeah. Yeah, so this thing is great. Is this in the category of something cool? Does this work? Totally. Okay. So what I love about this is it holds whatever water is in there and it always keeps it at whatever at the, you have three options, 175, 195, and 208. I always keep it at 195. And whenever I want tea or coffee during the day, which is a lot, I come over and I just instantly pour hot water. And if you're a kind of person who likes to wake up in the morning and drink hot water with lemon, or you're the type of person that likes to drink a lot of pu'er or Chinese tea, or really any kind of tea, 
I don't know why you would think it'd be nice to have the ritual of just boiling water, but for whatever reason, that thing is awesome. And I think every, and everybody that I've known that has come into contact with it has been like, I need one. <laughs> that, that definitely qualifies for something cool in my book. <laughs> okay, good. <laughs> I have one of those plug-in tea kettles that we bought, I bought on Amazon a year ago, no, over a year ago when we gutted our kitchen had, we didn't gut it. We had somebody else gut it when we were doing a kitchen remodel uh, because I make three, count them, three tea thermoses worth of tea every morning. (laughs) So I don't have to boil multiple things of tea. Totally. (laughs) Because I don't want to have to go through the ritual of boiling three separate tea. I just want to boil them all, get them done and ready to go. That's hilarious. Bring them all upstairs with me. (laughs) So you actually have three of those contigos or whatever? No, I have one contigo because this stays so hot that by the time I get to this one, which is like two hours later, it's cooled down enough that it won't burn my time. So you have to strategically place them at different places in your world so that the right temperature... Maybe yes. you need one of these Ojuj. Although that sounds like a pretty progress. <laughs> it's a system and it it's works a... for me at the moment. But at some point I may have to upgrade to this Oji regime. <laughs> it's like it's what it reminds me of is the ones that the people have people sometimes have that are built into their, you know, the under sink ones or whatever that are like crazy expensive that you can have built into your countertop. It's the hot. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I guess that's what they are. The problem with Instahots, though, is that that's going to be tap water. So that's going to be water that has the fluoride and the chlorine in it. I go and Um, gather my own spring water. And so what I'm getting out of there is like mountain water. So you can put whatever your water is in it you want. Very nice. That is really cool. I did not know about that before. I am pretty excited by that. Very cool. Yeah. Certainly qualifies as something cool in my book. So I, what I'm sharing this week for something cool is something that I just discovered today. And I I discover a lot of something, some things cool on uh, Instagram ads. I hate to say Instagram has targeted me (laughs) with ads. Right where they want you. Oh my God. They so have my number, man. So today I was scrolling through Instagram and they clearly know that I wear glasses because there was an ad for this app. Now I cannot vouch for whether this works or not, but it's an, it's not just an app. It's what it is, is called topology, like the topology of a map or whatever. And it advertises itself as a way to get glasses that never slide down your nose. That's the big selling point. But what it does is it, you download the app, and right now, as the t- as of the, this recording, we're recording on October 10th, 2018, although this is going to go live months later, you download the app and you do basically a selfie and it has you turn your head as you're doing the selfie and it scans your face, like 3D scan. Okay. It builds glasses for your and nose. It build, they custom like hand build. They only have like eight different glasses styles right now, but they do custom fitted glasses that are custom fitted for your face and they can be Uh. non-prescription or prescription and they send you a prototype 
and you try on the prototype. And if it's not right, then you send it back and you tell them that it's not right. And they apparently have really good customer service. So I was reading, I read a bunch of reviews in the app store and some people complained and then they responded to the complaints. So anyway, I haven't tried it. Apparently they don't take direct vision insurance, but they reimburse. I thought it was kind of cool. So it's an interesting concept to say the least. Totally. They're getting more and more good at doing stuff with these things we have in our pockets. Although I have a dumb phone. Dumb. You have a flip phone. Yeah. My best friend has a dumb phone too. (laughs) (laughs) But I cheat. I carry an iPad with me wherever I go. (laughs) (laughs) So you're not entirely disconnected. From the world of apps and stuff. (laughs) No, not at all. Not at all. (laughs) Well, Peter, this has been an amazing conversation. So like thought provoking and inspiring. And I'm so grateful to you for taking the time and coming on the show and talking to me. Me too. Thanks so much. I've really enjoyed it. And it's great to see you and see your, your, your gallery here. Of Carla. I want to, I <laughs> yeah, thank you to work. Carla for being our live studio audience today from my Creative Sandbox community. It's always great fun when we have a live studio audience. So, yeah, thank you again, Peter, and I will be back. Bye. That's it. That's a wrap. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Peter Van Winkle, despite my steamrolling taking it over. Let me know if you resonated and connect with me on LinkedIn or Instagram. And to dive deeper and meet other creative, open-hearted, like-minded women from all over the world at every stage of the creative journey, join me in the Creative Sandbox community. Support, encourage, and learn from each other. Find inspiration every day in our online forum, which is not on Facebook, but on a private, mobile-friendly network. And your membership includes my flagship seven-day e-course, Creative Sandbox 101, the course that inspired my ebook, the creative, not my ebook, my book, <laughs> The Creative Sandbox Way. And as a member, you'll get to participate in the live studio audience whenever I have podcast interviews like this one. For a limited time, membership is half off at just $10 a month. And you can check it out over at creativesandboxcommunity.com. That's creativesandboxcommunity.com. I would love to welcome you inside. And if you are free this Sunday and you happen to live in or near the San Francisco Bay Area, join me at Creative Sandbox Play Day, which is a half-day co-working retreat to come together with other creatives to get stuff done on your creative projects. We all know how hard it is to get to your creative thing when you're at home all by yourself. There's a bazillion things that are pulling at you, distracting you. It's just so hard to do it. Well, I've got the time all carved out on Sunday, 9.45 a.m. to 2.30 p.m. Come join us. Write, paint, knit, bead, draw, collage, whatever. And if you don't have a creative project, no problem. Come play with my art supplies. It all takes place in Palo Alto from 9.45 a.m. to 2.30 p.m. And it costs just $25 for the whole day. Well, 
9.45 a.m. to 2.30 p.m. And all experience levels are welcome. You do not have to think of yourself as an artist or a creative. Just come play. Go to creativesandboxplayday.com to sign up. That's creativesandboxplayday.com to sign up. Whew. And if you are getting value out of the podcast, share it with a friend and take a moment to hop on over to iTunes and leave a rating and review. There's a little five stars and a sentence or two to let me know why you like the podcast. What do you think of it? A sentence or two. And if you do that, and then you email me to let me know that you've left that review and how the podcast has made a difference in your life, that is how you apply to be considered for the listener spotlight. Listener spotlight is when I turn the spotlight on a listener. So you can be featured on the podcast, just like Peter Van Winkle was. Super fun, really relaxed. You and I'll have a chat. And I promise I won't steamroll you. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, that is it. Until next time, thanks again for joining me and go get creating. Subscribe at creative sandboxway.com slash podcast.